It's going to be an interesting show today. <laughs> Random thoughts from the Ruby Roads. Maybe we can call this episode Deep Thoughts. We should call it The Elephants. Deep Copy Thoughts. I'll introduce myself as Jack Handy. <laughs> This episode is sponsored by Rackspace. Are you looking for a place to host your latest creation? Want terrific support, high performance, all backed by the largest open source cloud? What if you could try it for free? Try out Rackspace at rubyrogues.com slash Rackspace and get a $300 credit over six months. That's $50 per month at rubyrogues.com slash Rackspace. DevMind is a software design and development studio in Chicago with expertise in Ruby, JavaScript, and Clojure. We believe that well-crafted software makes life better, and our team of designers and engineers is dedicated to that pursuit. We love our customers, we love our team, and we spend a lot of time and effort making sure that we fit the right projects with the right people. Get in touch at devmind.com. That's D-E-V-M-Y-N-D.com. This podcast is sponsored by New Relic. To track and optimize your application's performance, go to rubyrogues.com slash newrelic. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 153 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have David Brady. Whether or not we discover intelligent life there, I think we should consider Jupiter an enemy planet. <laughs> James Edward Gray. I have no response to that. That was a Jack Handy quote! <laughs> Josh Susser. <laughs> Good morning, I think. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv, and this week we're going to talk about some of the threads that we've had on Parlay. There's some pre- been some pretty good ones over the last few Chuck. months. Hey, hey, Chuck. Yes. What's, what's Parlay? Parlay. It's the thing that the pirates have to agree to if they trap you in the closet and you ask for it. Yeah. All right. Okay. Or. <laughs> also or, known as. It's our uh, discourse thingy. I, I couldn't think it, of a word. I blame. It's our private discussion community for fans yes, and supporters that, of the podcast. Yep. Thank you. Yeah. The thing that I really love about using discourse really quickly is not just that it's so easy to use, but you can actually tell it to, in your profile to do like email list mode. So people who want to consume it that way can too. I just want yeah, to point that yes, out. Those are kind of opt-in features. So if you're on Parlay and you haven't figured this out yet, we've heard some complaints that like discourse is not like the mailing list. And that's true. Uh, if you have the default settings, uh, but if you go in there and tweak your settings, you can make it pretty much like a mailing list. So um, if you're having trouble with that, please go in there and fill with your settings and, and uh, choose to get the emails regularly. And then you can treat it like mailing lists, which is great. So Parlay has been has been chugging along for over a year now. And we have, what, like, I don't know how many members we have now. It's like over 1,500, I think, last it's, time I checked. It's quite a few, yeah. Yeah. There's great threads on it all the time. I cannot keep up with all of it. It's too much volume. I, I catch each thread, and then I kind of mark the ones I'm interested in and follow those. And Yeah, it's a lot of volume, which is a good thing. Yeah, absolutely, and, and I really enjoy it. But there have been some terrific discussions on there, and we were kind of talking through some of our favorites and decided to do the show on it. So the official numbers on Parlay are we have 1,329 people in the forum, 825 topics, uh, 7,687 posts, 4,427 likes, one flag, <laughs> which, <laughs> which is one post that's been flagged and not removed, Don't worry, I guess. it was an audible, and, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah. 394 bookmarks, 1,741 flagged, 
and 143,725 emails sent. And two jerks. But, you know, but, but Don't Dave talk about I, me that way. But, but Dave and I try and keep it under control. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have medication and, you know. Okay, so, so we have a lot of stuff on Parlays. And uh, it had a bit of a lull when we switched over to Discourse. There was some, you know, mailing list nostalgia. But now that we have mailing list mode back, Parlay is just like super picked up in the last month or two. And it's it's been a lot of fun lately. So we have some we have some great topics to discuss today. All right. Yeah. So first off, here's an easy pitch over home plate. Um, it's kind of been discussed lightly on Parlay, uh, but also in kind of some tangential ways. But Rails four one is out. Has anybody used this at all? Wait, what? I, I heard there's nothing in it. <laughs> <There's> nothing. <laughs> Wait, That's Rails four. You heard Rails that four? from me, and I did not say that. <laughs> oh, you were talking about the thread. Yeah, the thread. The thread says, hey, there's this stuff. And For anybody listening to the show, Josh and I have had like two hours of sleep between us. <laughs> and, no, no. and they're sharing it. Okay. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> because we're single-threaded. <laughs> uh, my, uh, my life is multiple-threaded. So Rails 4.1 is out. Yes, yeah. I've actually used it recently. So I can talk about it a little bit if you want. I can tell you some of the things... But the thread on Parlay is kind of interesting. It actually points to uh, just one specific aspect of Rails 4.1 and kind of how to integrate that, and that's Spring. So for those who don't know, uh, one of the massive changes in Rails 4.1 is that most of the tasks like Rails generate or uh, rate DB migrate or stuff, every time you hit those tasks in the old way, it had to begin by loading the entire Rails stack. And so there was kind of a, depending on your computer, typically a two to five second pause while right. Rails booted up and loaded all of your gems in your environment and stuff. And in Rails 4.1, uh, that's largely been removed thanks to the inclusion awesome. of Spring. And the idea there is that the first time you do a task like that, Spring spools up your Rails app in the back as a background process, and that Rails app is wired in to watch your files, just like Rails does in development environment, looking for uh, changes. And so, when things change, that server kicks in and reloads that that code using Rails reloading mechanism. And and uh, so, basically, the server in the background stays up to date. And then, when you do rate DB migrate or whatever, it's just ready to go and it happens like nice. in a snap. So, so how does that compare to Zeus? That sounds a lot like Zeus. Yeah, it is. Similar things. Uh, they were competing ways to accomplish similar tasks, and for some reason, Spring is the one that got blessed and became officially part of Rails. But yes, I believe okay. those are similar things. So okay. how does this compare to Spork? Spork, am I wrong, but Spork kind of focused on just the testing, yes. or, or am I wrong about yeah. that? Yes, you are correct. This is more holistic in that... Oh. It focuses on, you know, even things like rake db migrate and stuff or Rails generate. Cool. So mm -hmm. to get rid of that pause throughout the system. Right. Yeah. And just for the show notes, I'm going to put the link that was shared in the Parlay thread because not all of our listeners are on Parlay. Right. And yeah. So and so this particular link is what if you're using RSpec? You know, the RSpec's kind of external to Rails, can it be made to work with the Spring system? And the answer is yes, very easily. Spring is very smart about all this stuff, and it can, since now we use bin stubs in Rails, that's the way you're recommended to do your 
executables, you can just tell Spring to springify, quote unquote, your bin stubs. And so it'll go through and it'll be like, here, I'll replace your rake with something that's spring aware. And I'll replace your R spec with something that's spring aware. And they use these background tasks and you have one for each environment. And then there's a spring executable that will show you what's running and let you kill them if you need to for whatever reason. It's pretty neat. I'm used to using a rake in the in the fall, not the spring. <laughs> <laughs> Different kind of rake. This is a okay. power hoe right here. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I have a joke about hose, but I'm not going to make it on the show because yeah, family. Let's, let's leave that. <laughs> there is there is a gem called hoe. I'll just say that. I know. Dave, just go for the rototiller joke. <laughs> No, please no. (laughs) Okay, so other stuff about Rails 4.1. I kind of like the variants. People familiar with that, that you have, you know, with the, um, what's it called? The, the system that lets us do all the, the templating, the Rails template engines. Variants. So, so, you know, you can throw view templates in the, uh, in your view folder. Uh, I'm sorry, directory. And, the, uh, you know, you can just chain a whole bunch of extensions onto it to say, okay, this is Haml, and then it's HTML, and you, so you can control what the uh, processing steps are through that pipeline. Right. And this lets you have a, a new kind of extension that you put on there that controls whether it's for your browser or your iPhone or your, you know, other sort of device. And I think that's pretty cool. That makes that makes managing uh, like yeah. another another dimension in that space uh, much more. So easy. I I have not used the variance feature, and and to be fair, I think it's actually even a little more fancy than Josh said. Like I think that's the typical use case is detecting like different platforms and stuff. But in truth, I think you can actually make variance for any arbitrary restriction you decide, right? So yeah, right. yeah. And I have generalized the system. I have a really good idea for variance. James, what's your IP address? <laughs> so seriously, are variants good for like the administrators logged in versus a guest is logged in? Yes, I believe mm-hmm. you could actually use them for something like yeah, that. Yeah, okay. so it, it looks like it keys off of the request, so any information you can pull from the request, then you can use. So the user agent includes iPad, for example, but you could also do by IP address or something else. Right, right. you yeah. could basically kick in a, a before filter and you could figure out something even using the database or whatever and then you could turn on which variant this request is basically. Nice. Yeah, yeah, before filters just just create some rack middleware to yeah, you know, annotate is. annotate the request with some extra data. That said, so this is interesting, and I'm holding judgment, and I confess I have not used it yet. But that said, the the actual use case of, you know, designing different for mobile apps versus desktop that that the Rails team cited, I I was a little skeptical on that one. It feels to me like we've been moving away from that with, you know, responsive design and stuff like that. I was actually going to say that. I was going to say, please use responsive design. So responsive design is great, but then there's like, how do you change the interaction? Because things are different enough that just your CSS and HTML you know, is only going to get you partway. You may be right. That's, it, it will be interesting to see how this feature plays out. Yeah, yeah. It, I agree. Uh, yeah, what I hope it doesn't become is the 16 pages I have to edit for this one action. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding, right? That's what I hope it doesn't become. Right. Yep. But there are some other features I haven't played with. I don't know if 
if you all have, but there's a database enums, which are kind of, you know, these list of values that you allow, like in a status column, for example, mm-hmm. and Rails will manage that, you know, converting those to integers and converting them back. Uh, so that's quasi-interesting, right. but I haven't played with it yet. Right. I, I want that to be tied to the, the PostgreSQL email. Yeah, that's yeah. my feeling on it, too. It's yeah. It's very database agnostic, so it's just an integer behind the scenes and not really intelligent, I would have liked to see a deeper tie-in with Postgres as well. Yeah. Oh, that, yeah, plug-in coming soon. Yeah, I hope so. And then this new one, again, I've not had a chance to use this, but I'm super excited about it. Mailer previews. So yes. Like, yeah, if you have emails and you make, like, HTML emails, it's easy to set it up now where in development you can just hit a URL and see the current version of that email. So, super cool there. And then the other feature that actually one of the reasons I wanted to talk about uh, Rails 4.1 is on Parlay, one big topic we have been discussing a lot is uh, 12-factor systems. And that includes many things, and we'll probably get into all of those eventually. But one of the things is, you know, kind of how do you get configuration type information into your application. And typically on something like Heroku, that takes the form of environment variables where you set like your database URL and that's how it's going to connect up to it or a URL for where Redis is or things like that. Rails is kind of moving in that direction. It does now have good support for uh, database URL, and one of the new files added is this secrets.yaml file, and it, it allows you to configure these these bits that you need to pass into Rails like that, these configuration bits, in this one YAML file, but the YAML file is, like most YAML files in Rails, it's ERB parsed when it parses it, so you can set environment variables and read them in there, in the YAML file, and load them up that way. And you can have different configurations for development, test, production, et cetera, as you always do. So it was, I, I just thought it was neat to see Rails kind of making this easier. And then inside your app, you have a nice interface, you know, rails.application.secrets, and that's where you can pull that information back out and use it. So it's kind of a small change, but it seems like a good thing pushing in the way apps have been going. So what are the issues with doing that, James? Like downsides, or what do you mean? Yeah, the, the, well, so the there was a separate thread that we ended up talking about what we were going to discuss today, the 12-factor apps one. Right. The discussion on, that we had on Parley about this was, like, there are some downsides to managing things using environment variables. And what happens to the security of that information on your system? Like, one of the things that was brought up was some of the, like, like um, exception reporting tools can include a dump of the environment that the Rails app is running in. Right. And that can leak those secrets to your exception handling system, which now has maybe your you know secret key for talking to something in it, and then it reports that to you in an email that's just sent out right. over an ins- insecure thing. Yeah, that's a great point. Or, or something like protected health information when you're trying to follow HIPAA guidelines. <laughs> right. Yeah. That yeah. could be a problem. So the subtleties around managing a Unix environment and the set of environment variables, I don't even get that stuff. And I've been using Unix since the 80s. So it's it's like not entirely clear to me how that stuff works in all details. And yeah, so so it's like one of the things that I didn't realize 
is that when you send a signal to, say, a unicorn process to tell it, oh, you want to restart? It doesn't get a new set of environment variables. It okay. just re restarts stuff within the process. So if you've gone and like fiddled around with your uh, environment settings as part of some deploy script, and then you go restart the unicorn process, it's not going to get those new configuration settings. Right. So, so environment variables, like most things in Unix, like uh, standard out, standard in, and stuff like that, they're handled at the time the process is forked off. So, and they inherit the environment from their parent. So the way you change things in Unix is like you do some fiddling in a parent process, then you fork a child and it has the new environment, right? So what Josh points to is, is exactly right. If you just do something like a, you know, a clean restart where a unicorn, I think what it does is it forks a new master process. But because that master process was forked from that parent, it will inherit that parent's environment, right? And if you've mm -hmm. made changes to it, then you're going to have to have some way of updating them and, and getting that through. In defense of secrets.yaml, you know, this is kind of a new system and you don't have to do it through environment variables, just to be totally clear. If I wasn't, you know, if you would rather just have that in some config file or whatever, you don't have to use the ERB parsing and you can put the data right in there, you know, so... It's kind of flexible, I think, right. but, but your points about environment variables are duly noted. Yeah. yeah. The thing that I loved about that conversation is how many different ways people approach the problem of managing the secrets that need mm -hmm. to be distributed among your servers so that they can operate. And how do you get those secrets from you know, somewhere onto, onto those boxes and where they live? And I love the conversation about, oh, just put you know, stuff in files because it's yeah. easy to manage that. It's easy to audit that. It's, you know, it's really, you know, it's a, it's a very stable uh, way of doing that and very understandable. And, and, that, yeah. and that works here too. Rails is just giving you like the official file right. where that stuff should live. Right. But the whole like how you manage getting the file on there is and keeping those secrets out of say, Version control. Yes. yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Not not letting your secrets accidentally get committed to Git and then published on GitHub. Right. right. Yeah. Right. But by the way, if if you mess up your GitHub repo and commit some secrets to it, there is a Git trick for getting rid of that. What is the Git foo for that? It's Git something branch. Git filter branch. Yes. Git filter. Git filter. Branch, yeah. 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 So if you if you look on GitHub, they have a, a little tutorial for how to use git filter branch to remove se accidentally committed secrets from the history of your repo. Right. It's not enough to just go in and take that secret back out and push a commit because it's in the history so we can find it. So right. you have to go back and edit the history basically to remove that bit of that data. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, but so the, the, one of the approaches I've used I, that I, I think someone mentioned on there is basically you keep the secrets YAML file or what, or whatever other files you're putting your sensitive data in, keep that in a separate location from your main app repo. And part of your deployment might be, you know, going out and refreshing that info from a different repo. Yeah. Onto, yeah. So, you know, you can do the same sort of install from a different repo. You can have it managed in some private gem that you get from your own private gem server. There's several ways to get it on there. Yep. Right. I've, yeah, I've, it's a, I've it's used an that interesting discussion. I've used that style in the past, and the it, it always seemed odd to me that 
if I can get to one Git repo, why can't I get to the other? But then when you actually see it in production, the secrets files are in a repo that only the ops guys can get to. You know, only the right. deployment team right. is allowed to get to that repo. It's on a different server, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah, you yes. could, yeah, Git repo doesn't have to mean it lives on GitHub, right? It could right. mean yep. uh, it's, you know, in your own private Git server or whatever. So. Well, I've also seen those files are synced or just SCP'd. Yeah. I mean, you can good, script right. it 10 different ways and make it work. Here's our file, or our app. Here's the one secrets file you'll need to engage everything, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. mm-hmm. Exactly. And it's on a three and a half inch floppy. And... <laughs> <laughs> we've, right. we've right. dispatched the driver. He should right. be there tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he, will, he will make the drop at an anonymous trash can. <laughs> right. right. Okay, yeah. okay, so so I th- I think we've uh, we've done that one to death. Yeah, I mean it was just good. I, I think, but so I, I will say that Rails four one was a pretty smooth upgrade. I did it on an app I have right now, and um, it was pretty smooth. I I didn't run into many problems. They did change one tiny thing in active record relation, but I think if you're going to run into bugs, this is probably pretty likely. Relation used to just duct type as a is an array pretty heavily, and now they have removed all destructive methods from it. So if you've ever done something like done some query and then done a shift or something like that to pull entries off the front or things like that, delete or whatever, any of the destructive methods, those are gone now. So I had one minor error in an app from that, but once I fixed that, it was pretty smooth upgrade. And I will say that the spring thing... I was skeptical, and I, I hadn't really looked into it much, but it, it's been great. I really like it. Cool. Since we're switching gears, one of my favorite threads, and one that I actually have about three blog posts related to that I'm going to write, is the where are all the junior developer roles or jobs? This is a great post, yeah. And I thought and thought and thought, and I, I kind of got mad for a little while. <laughs> no, why'd you get mad? Well, because it really felt like uh, some of the folks out there who don't either don't feel like they're senior developers or really don't have the skill set to be a senior developer yet, they don't really know where to go to find jobs. And, you know, the people out there all seem to be looking for senior devs. I mean, most of the places I've talked to about, you know, hey, I've got this this guy I know that's looking for a job. Yeah, they're like, well, we're, we're looking for senior people. And yeah, that I think that's true. Like, I, we've kind of touched on this, right? That all the job uh, applications are rock star, ninja, wizard, whatever. You know, like, where's the where's the room for the coder, the so, junior dad? Our, our next episode should be the wizards duel on yeah, Ruby Rose. Yeah. <laughs> so, so uh, I, I don't like to you know publicly harsh on recruiters too much, but I do think that there's a a bit of oh, what do they call it? Uh, exposure bias, or it's like what what we see in terms of the jobs that are promoted are the jobs that are going to make a recruiter the most amount of money. So the yeah, job, the point. jobs that they promote to you know and send out in their emails and, and all that are the ones that are looking for the the rock star ninja guru programmers that can get them a big commission. So that's the ones that they focus on. I think there are actually plenty of junior jobs out there. They're just not in the same places. That you know, my my first job out of college programming was at Xerox. It was a company of over a hundred thousand people, 
And mm -hmm. I think that a big company, you know, it's not going to be the like super startup experience and you're probably not going to get to work on a great agile team, you know, that kind of stuff, but it's a great first job. And I think that everybody should work at a big company at some point so that you understand how crazy it is to work at a big company and go off. And do <laughs> I, I am not kidding about that. I think that it's, yeah. it's really great training because big companies, you have to see, like they need a working process for them to work at all. And there's a lot more process there. So you get to see and experience the necessary processes with much more focus and attention on them. And then when you go to a smaller, more sane company, you've sort of absorbed a lot of the process orientation and then that becomes easier and it's not such a big deal in your small company. Right. But, but I, but, but for junior developers, I think that's a great place to start, you know, go work at Oracle or Apple or IBM or, you know, th those are great places to start your career. That's what I did. It doesn't have to be some little garage shop startup. So Katrina kind of had an interesting post on this thread. She she mentioned that terms like junior developer are very vague. And, you know, what does that exactly mean? And when do you transition from one to the other? She said she was thinking of a field where, in her opinion, the apprenticeship usually lasts about 10 years. You know, there there are still industries like that, you know, and, and uh Whereas in programming, I mean, you can go to all these schools, these coder schools and be at what level in six months? I mean, is that, are yeah. you still junior at that point? Have you made it to medium developer or what is that person even called? I don't know. I, I'm interested in, in everyone's thoughts on this. So one thing that that's kind of related to this is, uh, and, and I can speak to this in the sense of like a code base. So I'm, I'm working with the same client that uh, James is working with. And I came in at a point where they really didn't have work for me because I wasn't familiar with their code base. So in that, in that sense is I'm kind of a junior guy in the sense that I'm junior to the code base, not necessarily junior to the technology. And so, you know, I'm getting in there and I'm, I'm writing different components that all look very similar to each other as part of the application. And what this does is it orients me to the way that the overall system works because eventually these are all going to plug up into something else. And so, you know, the, it works the same with technologies where, you know, you get in and you, you, you figure out how people do things and you learn that way. And so there are plenty of jobs out there where people need that kind of help where, you know, you have enough proficiency to do the lower level stuff you know, or the higher level stuff, depending on how you orient that. And then eventually you can grow into the more complex pieces of things and make them work. And yeah. I think companies that don't look for people like that are being very short-sighted because you can actually train people before they get uh, the habits that we all kind of grow into. You can make those habits the habits that you want them to have. And, and, yeah. and do yeah. things the way that you want them to do things. But the other thing is, is, you know, you can bring them in and really just make them into, uh, experts in your code base. That's Go a ahead. good point. There's a, a user named Daniel commented in the parlay thread and said, and I'm just going to quote him directly. He said, okay, I'll come out and say it. There's a common perception that you invest resources into a junior dev. And once he becomes better, he'll move on to another company. And I wanted to throw that out there. I agree that that's a perception that I have seen, but I've also seen a perception of, like Chuck was talking about, of cultivating, where 
you bring somebody in and they're hungry and you basically, I mean, there's, there's two things that you can hire for, right? You can hunger for, hire for expertise and you can hire for hunger. And as long as they can think, you're going to get a good developer, right? Maybe they have to figure things out from first principles or maybe they, they figure it out because they've forgotten seven ways to do it. That's the difference between a good junior and a good senior. And if your company has a way of consistently giving hungry engineers enough to work on and enough to grow into, the only reason they would move on is because they have become so much more valuable than you are paying them for. And you need to address that. You need to come back to them in a year or two and say, okay, well, guess what? You're now a Rails developer with two years of experience and we want to reward you and, you know, give you the title of senior and give you, you know, a pay hike and, you know, because we want to keep you. And now you get to keep somebody who's got the lore, the lore of the project, right? All the processes and all the weird stuff and all the habits that you've carefully inculcated, but you've incubated them and then you've kept them. You, you basically say, okay, now it's time for you to step up. I, it is certainly true. I think it's a misconception in the Ruby. It, it, I, I think if you have the perception that you can hire somebody at a junior wage and keep them there for five years, I think you're going to be disappointed in your hiring and employment process. <laughs> what, yeah. what, what, what was the Dilbertism around that? Where you know the pointy-haired boss says, you know, what, you know, our our HR department says that you know we we're only going to pay market average salaries, but we want to hire the top talent. And Dilbert <laughs> yes. says, okay, so you want some these like idiot savants who are occupational you know, occupational savants yes yeah yeah occupational <laughs> savants who are great at their job but too stupid to understand we're underpaying them the, the, <laughs> the, the, so i love that quote so if you'll forgive me josh the, I'll, 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 cite, I'll cite the exact quote which is so we're looking for occupational savants which is a person who is a brilliant engineer yet somehow unable to compare two salary figures and determine which is the larger <laughs> yes. Well, that's that's exactly the thing is I think we all want certain things out of our jobs. And I think as people kind of mature as programmers, they get to the point where they want certain things out of their jobs. And I think for the most part, it boils down to they want something that's fulfilling. They want something that's interesting. Fulfilling is usually, you know, I'm making a difference one way or the other. And then, you know, it has to pay enough. And you can provide the first two, but as soon as somebody comes along and gives them a, a high enough number that's significantly enough higher than what you're paying them, they're going to look at those two numbers and they're going to have to weigh out what the advantages are of staying. And so yeah. if people are leaving, it's your fault for not being proactive in making sure they don't have any reason to even look. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I do remember the glory days of uh, you know the dot-com boom when people... Like developers were getting, you know, quote, salary raise, you know, reviews, you know, they're basically their annual review and promotion every three to six months. Yeah. Because if the employer wasn't upping their salary regularly, they would just move to a new job and get a 20% raise. Yep. Right. So like people were changing jobs two or three times a year and, you know, doubling their salaries over the course of a year or two. It was yeah. just nuts. So. Yeah. One of the things is too, like, I think people, underestimate, you know, how how helpful and productive junior developers can be. And it doesn't even have to be, I think a lot of people have this mindset where, you know, the junior developer is the one where you construct everything they do and they take care of it. Or, you know, it's like you lay out the steps, do this, do this, do this. 
But um, we have interns uh, where I work, and, and they're great and very helpful and, you know, self-task assigning and, and things like that. They You know, we give them, you know, their mm-hmm. autonomy, and, and they do great with it. Like, um, we had a, a search system that was problematic in that we needed to be able to set priorities for which results were returned from the search system. And uh, for some reason, it was supposed to work that way. And for some reason, we could not get it to honor the priority field in our particular case. But we did use uh, the system where it learned from people's choices. So like if someone picked this 100 times, then that one would be promoted over something that had been picked five times. So, uh, you know, when we couldn't get the priority system working, we had a junior developer come in and it was like, oh, we can solve this problem. And <laughs> just wrote a script that grabbed the priority f- uh, count and hit the select URL times. that many times. Yeah. That's it's awesome. Like, there you go. Priorities. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, yeah, I want to say a little bit about the value of junior developers on a team, too. I mean, this was my first contribution to the thread on Parlay, that it's not just about how awesome your, your senior developers are. There's a, you know, the team working as a team requires a certain balance. You know, yeah. And you, know, you don't want to have you know, everybody be a general. You need some soldiers as yeah. well and some lieutenants. Otherwise, you know, who's going to go out and, you know, dig the trenches and yeah. whatever. So, so, and there's some things that like junior developer doesn't necessarily mean bad or inferior developer. It's, right. it's just somebody with less experience and seasoning. But the upside of that is that junior developers, they haven't been exposed to all the same, you know, like years and years of crap that senior developers have had to go through. So when they see a problem, they bring a fresh perspective, yeah. which is both the power of the beginner mind, so they don't have the same constraints on their thinking, but also they find problems that like a senior developer would find boring. Oh, I've done, done this, you know, a thousand times. They find those problems interesting. That means they're going to, put more attention on it, and they're probably going to do a better job. Yeah. So we find on a team that there's a, it's great. There's some things you want the junior developers working on because they're actually going to do a great job on it. Yep. Another thing that's related to that is that a lot of times they will come up with solutions that the senior developer dismissed out of hand that will work Mm -hmm. because our experience as senior developers say, well, the right way to do this is somewhere over here. And they'll go experiment somewhere else and find something that works really nicely. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they'll bring, this is a personal anecdote, but I'll keep it very short. Sometimes juniors bring something completely bizarre and just like unexpected to the table that the seniors, yeah, the, like we don't go to that sector of the solution space because we totally could, but we we just don't have the ability to function there. We've never had the ability to function there, so we just don't even consider it. And a junior comes in, and they just happen to be thinking about that, right? To, to, to the beginning mind, all things are possible, so they're considering this impossible solution space. And the biggest example I can think of this is I was working with a developer who was 12 years my senior. It was a fantastic opportunity to work with him, and I watched him just kind of disintegrate physically, emotionally, and mentally over the course of the day. It was about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and he was growling. He was cussing at his computer, and this was very uncharacteristic from him. And he looked at me, and he said, Dave, I don't understand. This computer just won't work the way I expect it to. And I looked at him, 
And this is something that I was focusing on about you know, personal brain power and effectiveness and that sort of thing. I looked at him and I just said the first thing that came to my mind, which was, have you eaten? <laughs> and awesome. he, he looked at me and he blinked a couple of times and he said, no, let's stop and go get a hamburger right now. And we went and we got a hamburger and we came back and his computer magically sorted itself out once his blood sugar was <laughs> But right, I mean, that was something that he he never in a million years would have considered because it wasn't a computer problem, yeah. and because I was coming from this weird space of like blood sugar and brain function, it was like here, take this. And juniors do that. Yep. <laughs> well, it's, di diversity does that. Right. Yeah, okay. that's that's I think the point of this, right? I mean, there are so many cases where diversity brings things just always adds ideas, yes. right? And it's so valuable and it's right. true in senior, junior, everything. Else. So it's, it's, it, there's, a, there's also one other, uh, like, very, like subtle variation on that. And that's that if you have a team that's all like senior people, senior people have like over time, we've all evolved like these strong opinions about how things should work on a team. Yeah. And we, so we all bring a certain like philosophical outlook yeah. to the team dynamics. And we're used to working certain ways. So you can, you can build a team around, you know, a couple senior people who have compatible philosophies and then grow the team with some mid-level and junior developers. And then you uh, sort of culturally indoctrinate them in that philosophical orientation to development. Right. And if you have a team that's all senior people, the odds of them having compatible philosophies there are much lower, and so you, you end up this team where like everybody's fighting about how to how to work together. Whereas or, if you have a, a team with a couple senior people, then it's easier for the team to gel around a smaller number of those opinions. Right. And the other thing I would stress is if you do have a healthy, you know, senior junior mix, then then plan on that and make sure education and stuff are part of what you're doing. Like yeah, you yeah know, mentor, mentoring. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You need to be facilitating you need to be growing these employees and like chuck said you know you need to recognize when they pass points where they're no longer in those lower rungs you need to treat them and pay them accordingly at that time and you know make sure that you're monitoring that stuff don't just put this group of people down in a category and be like oh those are the people that do the grunt work you know or whatever that's not healthy or valuable <laughs> i like tools like Tracker that basically are very egalitarian, right? It's just the list of tasks that you have to get done. And the team, you can have a junior looking over that task list and you just, yeah, the first habit you give them is figure out what corner of the universe you can wrestle to the ground and then go wrestle it to the ground. And if they're looking over everything that's in the current sprint and it's all too big for them, that's when they go at stand-up and say, I'd like to help, but everything's too big. So I'm going to volunteer to tackle this, but I need a senior to help me. And that's a great example of hungry versus experienced, where there's a junior who's looking at the task list and she's overwhelmed by everything that's in it, but she's willing to step up in stand-up meeting and say, I want to tackle something and I need the right tool for tackling this is a senior engineer. So who wants to help me tackle, you know, I'm interested in learning this. Who wants to help me learn it? And if I was a senior engineer on that team, I would be jumping at the chance to work with somebody who's hungry. Exactly. I mean, they're they're the people that are going to be receptive to the things you show them and 
Yeah, I think you're right. I, I think that's such a healthy thing. And, and I love what you said about Trevor. I've never even like thought of it that way, that it, it doesn't, you know, discriminate, you know, and you can look through it and you can be like, oh, well, I can handle that. And I know personally, I even think that sometimes I'm often wrong, you know, but it doesn't matter. By then I'm neck deep in it and I'll figure it out, you know. Yeah. And whoever built the put, put the task in tracker gave it one point because it was going to take a senior engineer an hour to do it. And it ends up taking a day and a half. And guess what? Tracker's velocity compensates for that. And it were, it all comes out in the wash. Yeah, but the next time you have to touch something like that, you've got a junior dev or a dev, another dev, that can jump in and, and handle something yes. similar. And I've, I've seen familiar with the system. Yeah. Yeah. I just, yeah. I, I just, I've seen so-called juniors turn, turn to other juniors and say, I just worked on that. I can show you that. And that's when... Yeah. Win, yeah. So one thing, one other thing I want to bring up with this, because I've talked to several junior developers that have expressed this feeling, and then I see them email like the users group lists, or they show up and they say something like, well, I'm just a junior developer, and I've only been programming for three months, blah, 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 right? And I just want to go over there and shake them. It's like, look, you've decided that you want to do this for a living. And the way you figured that out is you sat down and you delivered code, okay? And so it's okay for you to be confident in the skills you have. Sure, they don't compare to senior dude over there. But go apply for the jobs. Go out on a limb. You know, I I feel this relates very directly to our imposter syndrome episode. But I I, I really just, it just makes me so angry because it's like, you have skills. You have skills that people need. And it doesn't matter if you've been programming for three months or three years and you consider yourself a junior developer. You yeah. Know, go, go out and talk to people. Go out and apply for those jobs. Find out what they're looking for. Build those skills. You know, keep writing code. It's not impossible. There's a job out there for you, so go do it. That is awesome. The... Yeah, I, I just loved how excited you got about that, Chuck. <laughs> just want to shake people. Well, I'm sorry. It's just the way I feel. And it yeah. I, I really do get passionate about it because it's like it, it doesn't matter how long you've been doing it. Cause, and this is something straight out of the, um, the letter to a new developer that uh, Avdi picked last week that Brandon Hayes wrote, um, where some of these guys, they have 10 years experience, but it's all the same year experience repeated 10 times. <laughs> and, you know, yeah, I can type rails new really well. Yeah. yeah. And, and yeah. so, I mean, honestly, it, it really just comes down to, are you junior or senior? It doesn't matter. What matters is, is that you can go and you can deliver some value for an employer. And if you can get in and get the interview and talk to them and they feel like you're the kind of person that they want on their team, it's not going to matter that you only have three months or a year or whatever under your belt. They're going to talk to you and they'll get a feel that, hey, this guy really or this girl, this person really can deliver for us and we want them on our team. And then they'll bring you up to what they need. And if you're vastly junior... An experienced hiring manager is going to suss you out really quick and figure out where you're going to be able to contribute. And if they need you, they'll hire you. Yep. So, you know, yeah, a good mantra is somebody out there right now needs your help today. And if you focus on finding that person, all of your fears about, you know, who will hire me, can it just go away? Because now you're looking to find the person that you can help. Yep. 
<laughs> All right. As much as we have said lots of great things about this, there's even a bigger controversial topic on yes. parlay that we want to get to. So I'm going to swing the conversation that way. The thread was basically, should I use Sinatra or Rails? Go. Sinatra. Neither. Merb. <laughs> <laughs> We're done. Let's do some picks. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I love this question. My answer is yes. Okay. I, I've used Sinatra, yeah. I've used Padrino, I've used Rails, and I've written pure Ruby web services. With the exception of Padrino, I've, I've used the other three in the same project. So I, I'm I've going to kind of rack. flip this one around on you, if I can, a little. Okay. A lot of people, you know, seem to have, in the Ruby community, experience Rails devs and stuff, I feel like, sometimes have an aversion to going to Rails and would like to resist it if they can. So maybe a better first question is, why not use Rails? Right. Am I wrong in thinking that? Like, sometimes, no. sometimes I, I feel like I see people use Sinatra because they feel like they should rebel against Rails. Yes. And it's like, congratulations, you know, full marks on your punk rock phase, but at the same time... <laughs> <laughs> That's so right. Oh, my gosh. Punk rock shark. Chuck and I worked on a team uh, two, three years ago, a couple years ago, that the IT team was all Java, and they were afraid of Ruby, and they, they were afraid of pop culture. And Ruby is pop culture, more pop culture than Java. And Rails is the poster child for pop culture in Ruby. And there was a lot of FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt, surrounding Ruby and even more surrounding Rails. And so in order to not violate this weird political thing, which there was a, a okay, all political dynamics are generally weird, but this one was extremely weird. We had to stay away from Rails, and we were building a Sinatra app, and we ended up including Active Record. We ended up including uh, Action View, Active Support, uh, Action Mailer. And at one point, one of our developers went through the gem list and said, do you know the there's like one something either like migrations or maybe it was Action Mailer, but one of the engineers came back and said, you know, we are missing two gems. And if we include this support gem, then the only other gem we are missing is the one that's actually called Rails. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that I think is the anti-pattern, right? If you think, oh, I'm going to do, um, Sinatra because I want to do things my way and, and blah, blah, blah. And then the first thing you do is write a router, right? right. And then the second thing you do is, you know, come up with some kind of controller system or stuff like that. And I, I say this fully being the guy that's done that yes. more than once. You I know? think we've all done that. So, I was... like, if you were there and you did all that, then you're rebelling against Rails for the wrong reasons. Right. <laughs> you yeah. know, like, you you should probably go use Rails and let that be good. So yeah. I'd like us to start with that. But James, I think there's a little context that uh, I, I want to I insert here. Of course. And that's that there's sort of a metamorphosis that happens in the development of an application. You know, you start with the framework. At the beginning of your application, like when you type Rails new, 100% of the code in your application is Rails. It's the framework code. Mm -hmm. And then as you work on your application, you get you know, the, the ratio shifts. 
and it goes soon, 10% of your application code is the application and 90% is the Rails framework. As you grow over time, the amount of code in your application dominates. You know, it ends up being bigger than the Rails framework or the part of the Rails framework that you're yeah. actually using. And at that point, the framework starts to become constrictive rather than enabling. And you're now making decisions about, okay, how do I follow the framework's rules? At that point, you have now outgrown the framework. Let me say something to that, because I had a good conversation about it recently. Cool. Uh, Definitely. Talking to people about their presentation for upcoming RailsConf. And that's, I think Rails gives you a lot of onboarding things. You know, we're going to go with these conventions. We're going to uh, just think this through for you so you don't have to worry about it and stuff like that. And then what we were talking about on this conversation is we were like, once you're into medium and large app territory, what is Rails deciding for you then? And the answer is nothing, right? At that point, you need to be making the choices. You know, you're going to have to decide how am I going to keep this under control? Which strategies am I going to use, et cetera? And, and that, I think, is where what you're talking about, Josh, depending on how you make those choices, you may actually run into a wall based on some of those early choices that Rails right. kind of helped you pass, right? Yes, that's, that's a very clear description of that. Yeah. So I, I think that's true. And so Sinatra, the difference there is Sinatra doesn't really put those walls up, right? You you won't run into that. But also what you won't get is all of that onboarding and early decision-making yeah. that does put you through small and on into medium apps, you know, and you will be the person making all those decisions from mm -hmm. the get-go. Yeah. So Right. So mm -hmm. so there's also like the Sinatra versus Rails thing is the concept of curation. And if you're starting out in the, you know, a Ruby-based web app world, Rails is probably the only choice you want to make because yeah. it's this very nice set you have nicely curated, selected set of compatible features. So, yeah. you know, we have an object mapping system. With the exception system. of Turbo. I wasn't going <laughs> to Sorry, mention. I couldn't read it. <laughs> but, but, uh, yeah, but you have all the different, you know, you have the M, the V, and the C, and they all integrate nicely, and there's all, it, it's just a very cohesive way to get started, and you don't have to spend all of your brain power making all of these choices about how to, how to assemble your foundation for your application. Mm -hmm. And that is great. And if you have leveled up a few times and you've built, you know, 10 different web applications and you and you have all of your own personal preferences, you can assemble those components yourself. But I wouldn't do that as someone who is just building my first or second Rails application. Right. And mm -hmm. also I'm not even sure you do you should do that like I'm not even sure you should do that at the beginning of a new project. Like assemble all the components yourself unless you know you're building a very specific structure that's pretty far afield from a typical web setup and stuff like nine times out of ten that really complicated part is one small section of your rails that you would <laughs> yeah. it's like two percent of the code right that yeah. you would break off and then if you made the decision based on that then the other 98% you had to completely design for no benefit, right? And yeah. that, that I think, is something to be wary of. That said, 
I am very pro Sinatra and use it a lot. Mm-hmm. And I think we should talk about some of the things about that because I, I see it more and more and, and there are a lot of advantages to it. Before we do that, can I suggest a heuristic and have you guys either vet it or kick it, which is that it sounds like a consensus that we're coming towards is we recommend that you know Rails and as you look at other frameworks, you should understand them in terms of what they give you over or under Rails as trade-offs against Rails. Is yeah, I, th- I think that really helps, yes. Sounds good. So tell us about Sinatra, James. I will say that I think there are some big benefits to going with Sinatra and and there can be times when it's a really great fit and things like that. One of the first hurdles, though, I think you'll run into with Sinatra is that you don't really have Rails making those decisions for you. So you generally start with like, you know, oh, now I need a router or something like that, right? I need a way to associate with this so I don't end up with one gigantic 1,000-line Sinatra file where it's get this, post that, get this, post that, right? And there are patterns for building bigger Sinatra apps. So just the simplest one of all probably is Sinatra sits on top of Rack, which I think we all know. Rack includes a really simple builder. And the builder in Rack basically lets you map some prefix to a given Rack app. And a Sinatra app is a Rack app. So just by using that, you could say, you know, posts, go to this Sinatra app. And comments, go to this Sinatra app. And just in that one thing, you know, super simple change, I'll link to the documentation of Rack Builder. The example at the top of the page shows it well. And um, just in that one simple change, you almost have control, right, from a Rails-esque point of view. So... You, you can manage bigger Sinatra apps, but you probably need to start thinking about that pretty right off the bat. Yeah. So what, w- one of the things I've seen is people extract a section of a Rails app, like a controller, and they'll pull it out as a Sinatra service. Yes, I've definitely seen that too. So uh, what I'm not clear on is like, what are the characteristics of that part of your Rails app that would lead you to pull that out and make a Sinatra service? There are lots of different reasons, I think, to do that. One is if the overhead of Rails has become significant in the request, like due to volume or something like that, but you're not using like very many Railsisms because you're, uh, you know, uh, probably a good example these days is you're just feeding a very simple JSON API or something to, for, you know, some wizardry that happens in the front end. You know, if Rails has become a significant hurdle at that point, you know, because of the overhead, then dropping to Sinatra can make it go much faster. It can also allow you to do things like if you have your main Rails app and your Sinatra app that's that's fronting your API or something, then those two can be like deployed slash restarted independently of each other, right? If you split them apart. So I think those are good reasons. So how would you compare doing that as a Sinatra app to using, like, the subset Rails API configuration? Yeah. Do, 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 we, do we want to mention what that is? Yeah, so you're talking about things like Metal, kind of, right? Well, there, there's Metal, which is, uh, like, an interface to rack middleware that's pretty low level inside Rails. 
There's also, uh, you know, speaking about curated sets of components, there is sort of a stripped down version of Rails that's intended to only be used for serving an API. It's not intended to, to be like a UI based web application. Yeah, I I thought that was metal, so I don't think I'm totally clear on the differences there. I, I would definitely say that could work, that, you know, using trimmed down uh, rails and stuff can work. And then it's just a matter of, you know, how much bang for your buck are you getting? I mean, rails is everything and the kitchen sink. So, you know, like, part of that is, like, think about just action pack alone. All the stuff that happens in a controller and the crazy rendering with ERB and and all the various, you know, XML and Builder and variants we just discussed, you know, all this neat rendering logic. If you're calling dot to JSON, all of that's wasted on you, <laughs> right? Like, I mean, great, it's nice, you have it, but like all of that machinery isn't doing anything for you. On the other hand, you do get things like the caching layer integration. That's true. Uh, you know, you know there, there's a lot of stuff about dealing with, uh, you know, set session management, security, authorization, you know, protection against security exploits. I would say the security reason is probably one of the more compelling advantages of going with Rails on something like this. Session management, if we're talking about APIs, they often have very simplified versions of that and may or may not use a traditional Rails session but I think you're right about Rails is pretty good about keeping up with common security exploits, taking just the bare minimum of steps to protect you against, you know, really stupid mistakes, etc. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yehuda Katz had a blog post a while back about why Rails is a really great choice for just being an API server. So maybe, yeah. maybe go find that. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And, there, and there's no right way to do it. Then again, you know, I, I will stress again that Having them as a separate process sometimes has a lot of advantages, and, and you can obviously do that in Rails. Uh, but this is another point. It's some jobs you, you have a lot of pieces and maybe running on a lot of instances. So, like, if you're running 120 instances, let's say, virtual instances, and you're running 120 Sinatra applications versus 120 Rails applications, the server profile you need is dramatically different. Dramatically. I mean, Sinatra is nothing. It, it takes up so little space. Rails is a monster. You know, when it fires up, it needs a significant chunk of resources, you know? So if you're going to run a whole, whole bunch of those, then you're going to be buying some bigger servers. <laughs> you know, that's just the way it is. Yeah, one other thing I want to point out related to the larger stack that you have with Rails is that a lot of times it makes it a little harder to figure out what's going on. And so if you want, and then this is one of the rules that I use to at least think about Sinatra is when I say, well, I just want it to X, you know, and, and so I have this real simple stack. I don't have all of the concerns that we're talking about here, not Rails concerns, just, you know, general concerns over the application. You know, I'm, I'm not as worried about the security for whatever reason. I'm not as worried about caching, you know, or maybe I can stick that in somewhere later. Then I at least think about using Sinatra. And then if, if one of those other things really kind of rears up and says, no, you're really going to need this, then I have to think about, okay, do I need to put this in Rails then? The, other rule I tend to use is if one of the major pieces of Rails is something I'm not going to use, say database or um, 
you know, if the view, the view structure I need is really, really simple and I can just bolt active record onto Sinatra, a lot of times I'll consider that as well. Just because it, it just gives you that, that smaller stack. And then I am only concerned with the things that I'm concerned with and the rest of the extra stuff that Rails gives you isn't there. Yeah. I, I do think we've highlighted a lot of interesting decisions here. And Josh has a great point. Like, there's a lot of times when even, you know, for APIs and such, Rails is mm-hmm. a great fit. One of the things I would also uh, I, I want to mention, because I think some people don't know this, is uh, Rails router can route to any Rack application, including a Sinatra app. So if you have your Rails app and you have a separate Sinatra app for whatever reason uh, and you you want to just fire them all up together, that's fine. You can do a Rails route, uh, put the URL in and list your Sinatra app right there and it will go straight to it. Uh, so you can you can include Sinatra apps inside of Rails and it works fine. Yes. Is there, I, I is there a good trick. guide or tutorial for doing that? I know it's really simple, but... All right. Anything else on that or any other things that we should cover before we uh, wrap up the show? One other thing I will say in favor of Sinatra is that um, it does kind of encourage me to experiment a little more. Like I, I, you know, for this particular app, this little chunk, let's try SQL instead of active record. And if you don't know about SQL, you really ought to do that sometime. You ought to try it instead of active record. I'm not as big a fan of SQL's model interface, so the part of it that tries to pretend like it's active record, for that I would rather just use active record. But the interesting thing about SQL, Avdi had a great Ruby tapas on it a while back about how it's kind of a more modern DBI, if you remember Ruby's old DBI database interface. It can allow doing these neat queries and stuff in a really elegant syntax and, and in a very performance efficient way when your problem doesn't particularly map to, uh, you know, an active record style ORM and you can do it with a few nice SQL queries and stuff. Uh, SQL can be nice to play with. And I, I, I realize you can use SQL with Rails and you can drop out the active record components and, and all of that, but I just find I'm more apt to do that kind of stuff with Sinatra because yeah, I'm making I, those I, I think that's great. And especially if you're doing like ETL kind of processing, you know, extract, transform, load, you know, streaming, you know, transforming data from one location to another and active record uh, one, of the, one of the things that you learn uh, eventually working with active record is when you do a, a find and pull a model in from the database and create the ruby objects for that there's like thousands of objects that created that get created when you do that it's you know yeah. pretty impressive <laughs> you know what a workout the garbage collector gets from that but that can be a really big performance issue and what James is saying, I agree with totally. If you're doing stuff that is much more data focused and less object focused, keep it at a lower level and don't pay the tax for active record of creating all of the structure for doing things that you're probably not taking advantage of. For sure. Okay. I promise to shut up about it now. <laughs> no, it's all good. It, in fact, it's really good. I've really enjoyed the conversations we've had about this stuff. Let's go ahead and do the picks. Uh, David, do you want to start us off? Sure. I have a bunch of picks, but I'm just going to pick one today, and I'll save the others for later. Actually, I have two. For those of you that are junior developers, I am still working on the job replacement guide, 
that's at jobreplacementguide.com. And I've run it past my writing group, and the rough draft is complete, and they are... My writing group are not technical people, and they have all come back and said, this book is really technical sounding. If you want this for ge the general population, you need to be less computery. So I'm working on that, but those of you listening to this podcast, the book uh, Rough Draft is probably already perfect. So that's something uh, that you might be interested in. I hope so. Uh, go out there and sign up for the mailing list. The book is still coming. And the other one is, I've been playing a lot of games that are in early release, beta, alpha access, etc. And I've been playing Prison Architect, which is like the most disturbing Sims game ever, because it's The Sims, but your citizens are felons and guards, and you have to build a prison. And it's actually really disturbing, like the the kinds of psychology that get, and, and the, the company that made it did it deliberately they, they they want to mess with your head you know it's yeah basically the psychology of incarceration and and what goes involved in you know controlling a population that doesn't want to be controlled that sort of thing so if you're into that kind of meta head messing type stuff prison-architect.com is the website and it's available on steam and I was going to say it was on sale, but uh, by the time this airs, it won't be on sale anymore. But you can check. It, it may still, they may be running like a month-long sale on it. So uh, those are my picks. On Steam, you can always just put games on your wish list, and Steam will email you the next time they go on sale. Oh, very cool. That's nice. James, what are your picks? I've got two. First of all, since we kind of talked about uh, Sinatra and stuff today, here's a, a neat one I found lately. I haven't had a chance to use this lately yet. Uh, but I kind of love the idea. It's a, a library called Mach 5, and it, it's for basically mocking out Sinatra services. And what I love about it is you can have all these different mocks. So, like, the user action that returns just this canned info or the user action that throws some specific error. And then you can switch between mocks on the fly. And, and, that, uh, and then so then your test suite can be hitting the one that returns the canned information or returns along with the error. And particularly in case of the errors, man, it's always terrible trying to get it into that one failure state, right? And uh, and this thing looks like it makes that really great, where you can just be like, it will throw error 406, <laughs> and bing, then you can test it. So this looks cool, and I, I'm looking forward to a chance uh, to use this in the future. Uh, so that's Mach 5, and then... For your music listening pleasure, a friend of mine, Paul, has me listening to Frank Turner quite a bit lately, and he's a singer-songwriter, and and uh, I'm really enjoying his stuff, so uh, just go check him out. I'll put a link in the show notes, so good music. Awesome. Josh, what are your picks? Okay, so I have a JavaScript pick. <laughs> this is... Uh, no. Yeah, yeah. Wrong so, show. This is the React... Uh, JavaScript library for building U user interfaces, um, UIs. And it comes out of Facebook, and they are uh, in the process of converting the you know, Facebook.com web application to, be, to use React for the rendering. I'm really liking React. I've only played with it for like a day, but I took a piece of our application that was built in Angular that I didn't really like how it was done in Angular, and you know, worked on, oh, here's a, here's a, a, a rough attempt at doing it in React, you know, by a novice. And it was really straightforward to do. And I liked what uh, the code was looking like. So I am hoping to have more to say about that later. 
but so far it's off to a great start. So I encourage people to take a look at React if they're looking for ways to do uh, like rich UI stuff in the browser. And uh, apparently it's, it's really nicely compatible with Backbone. And a common approach people are taking is using React as the view layer for a Backbone app. So, yeah, so I, I'm liking that. Okay, so that's that. And then uh, I have a, a fun yet practical tip for or a pick for this uh, new book that just came out called NYC Basic Tips and Etiquette, which uh, is kind of hilarious, but also super useful. This is a, a book essentially of car- it's a cartoon guide to surviving New York City. And it's probably the best travel. Yeah, it's it's the best travel guide that I've seen for for New York. And it's I I, I want someone to do this for New York City. <laughs> I mean I mean for us for San Francisco, it's you know, like New York City because uh, there's a lot of very uh, city particular stuff in it. But there's also some stuff that is broadly applicable. And I really like the instructions on basically how to get around on the sidewalk. And so I'm looking at this as basically. Optimizing peer-to-peer interactions at web scale. <laughs> it's like you know, New York City is a city at web scale, right? So it's so like all the little things that don't matter in a smaller city really matter at that scale. So that's what this book is about. So that's my pick. Interesting. All right, I am going to actually do something a little different this week. One, I'm going to mention that we interviewed the guys behind React at Facebook on JavaScript Jabber. So there's a link there if you want a little more. Uh, discussion on what React is and what it's about. And the what I'm going to do that's a little bit different is that I'm actually going to talk about the other shows that I do. There are three other shows. One is on JavaScript, JavaScript Jabber. You can find it at javascriptjabber.com. I also do a show on freelancing, and I get a lot of questions about freelancing from people that I meet. And there are a lot of terrific answers on that show. Uh, and that's at freelancershow.com. And the last one is the iFreaks show. I actually asked for names for the show, and Josh was the one that recommended iFreaks. And uh, that one's been going for about a year, and we talk about iOS programming. So if you have interest in any of those things, uh, you want to get better at JavaScript on your Ruby, Rails, Sinatra, or other app, then go check those out. And other than that, feel free to go sign up for Parlay, uh, rubyrogues.com slash parlay, and uh, we'll catch you all next week. A special thanks to HoneyBadger.io for sponsoring Ruby Rogues. They do exception monitoring, uptime, and performance metrics and are an active part of the Ruby community. This episode is sponsored by CodeShip. CodeShip is a hosted continuous deployment service that just works. Set up continuous integration in a few steps and automatically deploy when all your tests have passed. CodeShip has great support for a lot of languages and test frameworks. It integrates with GitHub and Bitbucket and lets you deploy cloud services like Heroku, AWS, Nojitsu, Google App Engine, or your own servers. Start with their free plan. Setup only takes three minutes. CodeShip, continuous deployment made simple. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by CashFly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with CashFly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the rogues and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a forum that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at rubyrogues.com slash parlay.